uh, 22 through 25, Luke 8, 22 through 25. You know, as I looked at the uh, remainder of the 8th chapter of Luke, there's a temptation to just simply um, see these four miracles. There are four of them recorded, and, and uh, to kind of take them straight forward and move through them quickly. But when you uh, stop and really uh, dive into them, there's an awful lot to be learned that's kind of implicit within the story that reveals a lot about the character of God and about our walk and our relationship with him. And I might add that the other gospel writers also belabor these miraculous accounts. Sometimes they give us simple summaries. And he healed all that came to him. That's pretty simple. But then other times uh, they take the time to expand on what that means. And in the case of these particular stories, uh, all of the gospel writers, uh, at least the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, spend a little more time with most of them because I think there is something, in fact, uh, much deeper uh, inside. So uh, why don't you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 22, and then we'll kind of look at this in some detail. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? You know, the story's pretty direct, isn't it? Jesus gets in a boat. Uh, they head out across the lake. He's tired. He falls asleep. Uh, somewhere out in the middle of the lake, a storm comes up, and uh, the waves are so... Uh, tumultuous and high and the wind is so strong that the boat begins to fill up and these very uh, a number of them very experienced fishermen in fact there was more than one boat we're told uh, you know in some other uh, of the gospel accounts that there were several boats traveling together and and uh, these experienced sailors are fearful for their lives and so uh, Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping you know, and uh, you can imagine they have done all they can do and they're reaching panic stage. And they go back and they wake him up with this panicked cry, Master, we're, we're perishing. And uh, he gets up and just speaks a word. He rebukes the wind and the waves and everything goes, just hush. And then Mark says, now they're terrified. <laughs> they were fearful of the wind and waves. But when Jesus speaks to the storm and it just stops, they're terrified. And, uh, you know, when you start looking at this story, there is so much here that uh, speaks to us about God's power 
and about uh, what's going on in this uh, act of nature. You know, in our insurance policies, and the wording may be changing a little bit uh, as we become more secularized, I don't know, but uh, if you read the fine print, oftentimes it says on the exclusions, acts of God. And uh, those exclusions typically refer to things like uh, tornadoes, floods, storms, uh, the kinds of things that uh, we have no control over. And um, so many times they're excluded. But it's kind of interesting that we refer to them as acts of God. I want to ask you a question this morning as we think through the story. When cataclysmic events occur in nature, who is behind them? Is it an act of God? Is it just nature? Or can Satan be involved in the process? And when we look at this account, one of the things that stands out that suggests to me that Satan is involved in this particular situation is that, first of all, these experienced sailors start out onto a lake not anticipating a storm. You know, they know how to read the sky, they know how to read the water, they know how to uh, judge, you know, what to expect uh, for the most part. Even though uh, the Sea of Galilee is a pretty good-sized sea, a uh, pretty good-sized lake, it's still not so immensely large like the Atlantic Ocean or something that, that you can't kind of read a, a certain amount of the, you know, of the indications of the weather. And yet they start out not expecting trouble. The other thing that stands out is the wording that's used in the original language here indicates that this was a fierce gale that came up suddenly. It's not like there was a lot of preliminary warning, uh, the wind began to pick up, the waves started. Uh, it's, the indication is that this particular storm just descended on them. It, it came suddenly. And it came with such violence and with such uh, tumult that the boats were very quickly beginning to fill up with water uh, to sink. And then Jesus, when he is awakened, stands up and he rebukes the wind and waves. It's hard for me to believe that he would be rebuking what was the work of his father. It's also hard for me to believe that God would send a storm that would threaten to drown the Messiah and the disciples before the cross. This is a storm intent on drowning them all. And it's obvious, I think, from the context of the story and the way that Jesus handles it, that this is not an act of God. I think we can safely attribute this event to an act of Satan, who happens to be the prince of the powers of the air, which means primarily and, and uh, chiefly the demonic spirits and evil angels but also it, it encompasses the, the heavenly realm, the atmosphere around planet Earth. I want you to think for a moment with me about what this planet was like before Adam and Eve sinned, before the fall of man. 
In fact, the scripture gives us some insight. It says, for it had not rained yet in those days, but a mist used to arise from the ground to water the earth. The indication is that there were not the weather patterns that we have today, and in fact, there was some kind of terrarium-like uh, misting natural moisture that came up and, and uh, kind of saturated the earth and watered it and supplied it, and that we did not have the kind of uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and fierce winds and thunderstorms and lightning that we have now. In fact, when Adam surrendered uh, his dominion of this world domain to the powers of darkness and to Satan himself, the whole of nature changed. God not only cursed the ground, but Satan himself began a perverting process that has affected all of nature as a consequence of sin. And so when we see these kinds of events happen, we really have to ask ourselves the question, what is the source of this? Is there some context that gives us insight? We know that God does use natural catastrophes and weather patterns to serve his purposes. In fact, the first rain we run into in Scripture is a pretty big one. It lasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and it destroys everyone except Noah and his family on the ark. And that was clearly an act of God. Uh, when whatever it was, uh, earthquake or whatever, when the earth opened up and swallowed up the sons of Korah, uh, and just they just disappeared in the face of the earth, uh, that was an act of God. Uh, there are other times through scriptures when we're clearly told that God is behind the events. And so when we look at a situation that occurs in the natural realm, quote-unquote, we really need to be uh, somewhat discerning as to what, in fact, may be going on. You recall um, Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana. One of the things that uh, I was saddened about at the time was how quickly uh, popular preachers on radio and television across the country were quick to attribute that to the judgment of God upon that wicked city of New Orleans. Um, that's not something that we have the uh, discernment and wisdom to say. We cannot necessarily say that God caused that to happen. Um, we have to be careful about that. Uh, this was not a natural calamity, but the same sort of thing happened when the World Trade Center towers collapsed as an act of terrorism. Uh, what was one of the first things you began hearing by, again, popular preachers? God is bringing judgment on the economics and, and, and on the United States, and he's judging us for our wickedness. That's a tough thing for us to, to decide about, particularly since we live in a time when this period is characterized by the gospel of grace. And the word of God is that he loves us and wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm not saying that he is not behind judgment, because certainly he is at times. What I am saying is 
that it's very cruel of us to claim to have it all figured out and to make statements that imply that the tragedies that happen in human lives are a direct result of the judgment of God. Sometimes it is a direct result of the work of the enemy whose intended purpose is to destroy human beings before they have an opportunity to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. The devil, among all things, is a destroyer, and it is his delight to ruin people. That is his mission. And so we have to be careful, I think, when we try to, to, make a, a, to draw a conclusion, uh, unless God has told you something directly. Some of those uh, preachers on TV were claiming that he had. But unless God has told you something directly, uh, we need to take care. But by the same token, we need to recognize that not everything that happens in nature is such that God is the causative agent. He is always over all. And nothing happens without uh, his oversight. But a great deal of license has been given temporarily in this time to the enemy of our souls because we yielded to sin and have given up control of a great deal of this stuff. So here we have a situation where obviously the devil is trying to get rid of Messiah. It wasn't the only time in Jesus' life and ministry that the enemy tried to do him in. You remember the time when they brought him to the edge of the cliff and they were going to push him off? And the scripture says he passed through the crowd and went on his way. Now I want to ask you something. You can understand a little bit about mob mentality, right? If you're going to push somebody off a cliff and that's your purpose, you don't leave big gaps. You don't spread out 10 yards apart so he can, you know, run uh, like a linebacker or something for the, for the goal uh, in between everybody. You, you bunch up, you tighten up, you're planning to herd him to the edge and throw him off. And the wording that the scripture uses is, he passed through them. One minute he was there, and the next minute he's walking down the road. And they've got to be going, where'd he go? Because he just evaporated, as it were, from their midst. The enemy, on numerous occasions, tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And nothing could thwart the purposes of God until redemption was accomplished. How can Jesus sleep through a sudden raging torrent? Uh, how, how can he manage to just lie in the back of the boat and not be worried? I think it is wrapped up in his messianic mission. Jesus, by this time in his ministry, understands the will of the Father is Calvary and that he's going to die on a cross, the one, the sacrifice for our sin. He's not going to die in a ship at sea because he drowned. And I believe that Jesus is saying to his disciples, fellows, we have a mission. Now, 
obviously they didn't have that depth of understanding. But he's communicating to them, we have a mission, and nothing can take us out until that mission has been accomplished. I am safe until the cross, as it were. He's Actually, he's safe on the cross, but I won't go uh, into all of those details. One of the things that's a little unsettling here, uh, in some ways, is that Jesus turns to his disciples after this event has uh, everything's calmed down, and he says, where is your faith? He implies that he expected them to have that same kind of confidence that he had. And uh, they clearly didn't have that. But the lesson that goes away from this is for them in the future to understand our God is omnipotent. He has all power. He has all authority. He can do anything. There's nothing beyond his control. Again, I think we have to be careful about taking credit for what happens directly as if my prayers uh, change the course of history. Uh, There was a gentleman whose books I was reading many years ago, and uh, I think the last one I read was uh, the one where he claimed to single-handedly, through his intercessory prayer, determine the outcome of World War II. Uh, He basically claimed to be directly and personally responsible as an intercessor for how the whole war turned out. And I thought, wow, that's kind of the height of arrogance. (laughs) That's beyond anything I can imagine. But it's not to say that we do not have authority in prayer. Have you had the experience when you hear the weather, uh, when the tornado sirens go off, of being impressed to pray? I don't mean the knee-jerk kind of response that comes, oh, I ought to pray, the weather's getting bad. Oh, I'm scared to death, I better cry out to God. I'm talking about the kind of Holy Spirit motivation that says, I want you to intercede for your neighbors. I want you to pray for your community. I want you to intercede here. Have you had that experience? I've had that experience. I've had the experience of God just laying a a burden on my heart that I should pray for intervention and diversion of the storm. I don't presume to think I'm the only person. I suppose I could be, but I'm not going to be that arrogant about it. I assume that God is speaking to others of his children who are being similarly motivated, but the reality is that God is still on the throne and the powers of nature are still under his authority. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and they stopped. The other element that is in this story that is so significant is I don't think there is a place in Scripture where the deity and humanity of Christ are so clearly evident simultaneously. Again, this is not to say that Jesus is acting in this case 
independently of the Father as God, and he is God, because he himself tells us, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do the things he tells me to do. And we know that he does them by the power of the Holy Spirit because he says to his disciples, you're going to do these same works and greater because I'm going to my Father and I'm going to give you my Spirit. I keep quoting that verse, by the way, because the essence of good teaching is repeat, 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 and I really want us to get it. But having said all of that, here is one who stands and commands the elements, and they obey him. He says to the wind, stop. And he says to the sea, be still. And instantly a calm settles. The, the, the wording, again, in the original language is very clear, that as suddenly as this storm came, just as instantaneously it ceased. And everything was glassy smooth. Storms don't start that way and they don't end that way. There's always a preparation and there's always an aftermath. But in this particular case, Jesus is demonstrating his absolute authority over the elements of nature. And then he has the power to stop the wind and the waves. He rebukes them. Were there other occasions in Jesus' ministry where he commanded the elements. Think about it. That's one of your study guide questions, so I'm not going to give the answer away. But I want to encourage you to go look in the Gospels and see, are there other places where Jesus takes authority over the elements of nature and changes them? Because he is the God who is in charge of all the universe and all of its elements and its power. The reaction of the disciples to this is quite interesting. I mentioned to you that a number of them, and you know them, Peter, James, uh, and Andrew, and John, and perhaps uh, others of the people in the other boats, and maybe some attendants on that very same boat, are all experienced fishermen, experienced sailors. They understand what's going on. They are terrified of the storm that has come upon them. But when Jesus rebukes it, their terror goes up several notches. They are truly terrified in the presence of Christ who has just taken authority over the Sea of Galilee. You know, th this is what they know. This is their element. And here is Jesus, who stands from asleep in the back of the boat. What, what I imagine him doing is, you know, they come back, Master, Master, we're perishing. You know, and he's, oh, man, wiping the sleep out of his eyes and looking around, and it's like, huh, be quiet. And now they're frightened. Who is this man that even the wind and waves 
obey him. Aren't you glad that our Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And that he never changes. And there's no shadow of turning with him. And we can go to him now and find that same authority. At the same time, there is in the story the, tr- the very clear humanity of Jesus. He has been ministering all day. Mark tells us that the crowds have been there. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's, he, it's drawing toward the end of the day. The multitudes are still on, this, on the seashore. They're still by the lake there. And he gets in a boat and says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. He's tired. He's so tired, he falls asleep in the stern of the ship on the cushion. How many of you uh, are experienced boaters? How many of you uh, are used to non-motorized watercraft? Yeah, okay, well... How many of you know where the most stable part of the boat is? It's not the stern. (laughs) It's in the middle. When you're in the white water and the waves or whatever, things tend to go like this or like this. But if if you analyze what's going on in a ship, the center of it tends to be the most stable part as things rock around and the center kind of is, is the focus of gravity. I'm fairly familiar with uh, canoes and the kayaks and rafting in uh, water that's uh, sometimes exciting. In fact, a few years ago, I nearly drowned in a, what was called a funny act, but it didn't turn out to be so much fun. It was a kayak that was inflatable. And uh, I, I soon realized, but a little late for the adventure, that you don't put someone my size in an inflatable kayak. Um, and uh, you, sit, you sit back in the, in the crazy thing. And uh, as soon as we hit white water, the front went up, the back. And, and then the next thing I know, I'm out. It just threw me out. And um, the stern is one of the most violent places to be regarding movement. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the stern. I don't know what that felt like to him. Maybe it was like a big roller coaster ride. And I don't know, maybe he liked roller coasters. What I suspect is he was so exhausted that it didn't wake him up. He was back there in a deep sleep, absolutely at peace, not a care in the world and totally worn out from the ministry. We find him in other times of his ministry in a similar situation. You remember the story of the woman at the well? We tend to get all excited about what happened with the woman at the well, but we forget why he's there. They've been walking, and it's come to a point in the day when Jesus just can't go on. And he says to his disciples, you guys go in the town and buy food. I'm going to just stay here. I'm tired. I don't feel like walking into town. There are other times when we find that he leaves the crowds and he goes away to the mountain to pray. 
or he uh, gets away in some other way and, and, and goes to look for a place where he can have solitude because he needs spiritual refreshment. He needs physical refreshment. He needs rest. He needs food. Jesus is vulnerable to the elements of his humanity, and he recognizes it. And he takes time to gain the nourishment and the strength and the rest that he needs. I found it ironic, and, you know, whenever I'm preparing a message, God is always speaking to me. You know, before I can bring a sermon to you, I have to hear it. And God is speaking to me. And I find that Jesus, who is the Messiah, is not afflicted with a messianic complex. You know what I mean by that? He doesn't feel the necessity to always be the fixer. I'm a fixer. Something's broken. I feel like I'm supposed to fix it. Uh, I don't just need to listen. I don't just need to hear the complaint. Uh, I don't need to just give empathy. I'm supposed to do something. Uh, that's, that's kind of the way I'm wired. And uh, as a consequence of that, um, it's pretty easy for me to wear myself out, always rushing into things as the fixer. You know, I'm here to be the Savior. There's something wrong with that kind of thinking, by the way. And many times we find ourselves in that role where we're actually trying to take the place of God. Did you know that Jesus left the crowd undoubtedly before all of them had gotten to him? Now, the scripture says that he healed on one occasion all who were brought to him or all who came to him, but it does not tell us that every time in every situation, everybody that was in the crowd managed to get forward. In fact, we're going to see a little later in this very chapter that one woman tried very desperately to get near to him because he was moving toward another direction and people were being left in the wake. And she was determined to reach him. Jesus did not feel compelled to stay there and to touch individually every single person in the crowd. He left the crowd. And on other occasions, he left the crowd because he needed rest, he needed food, he needed spiritual refreshment. In his humanity, he did not attempt to minister from an empty well. But he spent time in the presence of his father, allowing the deep springs of the life of God to flow back into his life and fill up the reservoir so that he was always ministering out of fullness and not out of exhaustion. I have to recognize, and it's hard for me, that sometimes I get in the way of God because I need to be pointing people to God instead of being their answer. I need to come to that place where I can move people to look to Jesus as the source of their help and not always be the one who's trying to ride in, you know, 
on the great white stallion with my white hat and uh, solve all the problems. But I suspect I'm not the only one in the room that gets uh, smitten with that affliction from time to time. Jesus recognized his humanity and he lived by his father's pace. I only do the things I see my father doing. I only do what he tells me. I don't do everything else. Because of that, he was unhurried. Because of that, he lived his life at a pace that was always moving forward, never late, never early, but always where he needed to be. Because he moved at the pace of the Father. I hope that's a lesson that you and I are willing to give ourselves to. Lord, teach me how to rest. Teach me how to draw aside. Teach me how to fill up again. Be still, the scripture says. Be quiet. Hush. Hush. And know that I am God. That's often when we find the strength. Father, I pray this morning as we consider this passage that we would be encouraged that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you still calm storms and stop winds. To be reminded that now you have been risen from the dead and you are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in the throne of all authority and power in the universe. All authority has been given to me, you said. We can come to you and there's nothing that you cannot do. And then, Lord, you model for us you teach us by your example. To be men and women under authority and independence upon the living God. To draw from the fountain. To eat the living bread. To rest and abide in you. And to be at peace. Lord, teach us that lesson. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.